IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the principal political analyst for IBN, the independent voter news. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guests today are Dr. Peter Ackerman and Alexandra A.E. Shapiro, two stalwarts of fair elections. It would take an entire show to adequately present Dr. Ackerman's political resume, so I'll just state a few. He's the founding chair of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. He served on the board of Unity 08 to fund independent candidates. He founded and chaired Americans Elect, whose mission was to stage a national online convention to select a nonpartisan ticket for the 2012 presidential election that would be on the ballot of all 50 states. He founded the Chamberlain Project with Kara McCormick, who led the successful ranked choice voting campaign in Maine. And he's the founder and chair of Level the Playing Field, which, along with the Libertarian and Green parties, sued the Federal Election Commission in an attempt to open up the presidential debates. Alexandra Shapiro is a partner and co-founder of Shapiro Arado Bach and has the distinction of being one of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's first clerks. She served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, where she also served as deputy chief appellate attorney. In addition, Ms. Shapiro has served as an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel of the United States Department of Justice. She's also led several efforts to achieve political reform through litigation, including a successful challenge to the Federal Election Commission on behalf of Unity 08, as well as an ongoing effort to change the rules used to exclude independent candidates from the presidential debates on behalf of Level the Playing Field. Ms. Shapiro and Dr. Ackerman join me today to discuss the impact of the political duopoly that controls our elections and the need to truly put unaffiliated candidates on a level playing field when they compete for public office. So Alexandra and Peter, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Glad to be here. Thank you. Peter, how did you come to meet Alexandra and become engaged with her from a litigating standpoint? In 2007, I was approached by two prominent Democrats or Republicans who I had known who were creating an effort called Unity 08, whose idea was to create a nonpartisan ticket that would be on the ballot in all 50 states to be decided by an online convention which every American could participate in. I have in my career been very interested in the perfection of democratic governance around the world, and I thought this was a great opportunity to put some energy into what was going on in our country. In the process of creating this effort, it became quite clear that the budgetary needs would approach 35 to $40 million, and that we needed to go to the Federal Election Commission to get some kind of sense about how we could raise this money. And predictably, now that I've been through this process, the FEC created a set of rules that were the most burdensome possible to ensure that we could never raise this money, to wit, they basically said, you can only raise this money in $5,000 increments. And I remember going all over the country to try to raise this money, and it would take a few hours to make a presentation. If I were successful, I would raise $5,000 maximum. And it became clear to me that it would have required 20,000 presentations to raise the money needed. And so we went out to sue the Federal Election Commission to revoke the rules to finance that were required. We had originally went with the lawyers that existed with Unity 08. They lost at the district court level. And then at that point in the beginning of 2008, most left Unity 08 to go and find the candidates of their choice. I am not a partisan, so 
I stayed on and tried to finance the appeal. In that process, I went to one of my law firms, and they introduced me to Alexandra, and Alexandra got involved with the appeal. Alexandra, would you please provide us with an overview of the lawsuit and describe what happened? Sure. Thanks, and thanks so much for having us on the show. So what happened then was we took the Unity 08 case against the Federal Election Commission to the D.C. Circuit Appellate Court, and we argued that Unity 08 was not supporting any particular candidate for president, and therefore it should not be regulated under this scheme that Peter mentioned that requires donations to be limited to $5,000. And we were very fortunate to convince the D.C. Circuit that we were right. It was one of those rare instances where the Federal Election Commission loses a lawsuit because the courts tend to defer to the FEC and often accept its judgments without too much scrutiny. So after we won that case, Peter was able to start Americans Elect for the 2012 election and set up a process that he hoped would lead to an online convention like what he had described to nominate an independent, nonpartisan ticket for the presidency and vice presidency. More recently, the two of you have come together on another suit with the Federal Election Commission that involved the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, and a group that Peter founded and shared called Level the Playing Field. Peter, what was the focus of that lawsuit? So because Alexandra had this extraordinary victory, and it was extraordinary, I've come to appreciate that, we started Americans Elect. And we did some amazing things. We created a online capability to host accurately 40 million voters. We created an effort called Know Your True Colors, which allowed you to not only just state your preference on issues, but how intensely you felt about it to get a truer sense of what kind of candidates you preferred. And then we did the largest signature drive in the history of the United States, where we gathered 2.8 million signatures to get on the ballot in 41 states. Now, the problem was is that under our rules, and we had to have a rules-based convention. And let me step back by saying why. One of the conditions of the lawsuit victory was we had to say that at Americans Elect, we were totally nonpartisan. We had a rules-based process, and we were not affiliated with any party or specific ideology. So it was a completely neutral platform. And so in garnering this 2.8 million signatures, we had to do this under our rules before the middle of May of 2012 and actually select a ticket that would win. When we went out to try to get people to run, they were very excited about being on the ballot and everything we did. But what we discovered to our dismay is that the ability to actually take this winning ticket and to get them into the debate was virtually impossible because of the rulemaking by the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a handmaid of the Federal Election Commission. So we ultimately had to shut down under our own rules, Americans Elect in 2012, and then we took a little step back, and then I sat down with Alexandra and said, do you think we should litigate or can litigate over this debate access rules? Because without getting into the debates, nobody who is serious is going to run unless they can actually have a voice in the fall presidential debate. Alexandra, what was your strategy at the time, and did you pursue litigation? And if so, what were the results? Sure. So what we did back in 2014 was we developed a litigation strategy 
Peter also spearheaded a big effort joined by many, many prominent Americans to try to lobby the commissioner of presidential debates to change the rule, but they refused. And so we went forward with the litigation. Just taking a step back, the, the Commission on Presidential Debates is a very unusual body. I think a lot of Americans who don't know much about it, in fact, assume that it's a government agency or something like that, when, in fact, what it is, it's a private nonprofit organization. It's not at all transparent about where its money comes from or anything like that. And it operates under an exception to the federal election campaign laws. And let me just give a little background on that. The federal election campaign laws basically prohibit corporations from contributing or making expenses on behalf of political candidates. However, there are exceptions, including an exception for nonpartisan educational efforts. And the Commission on Presidential Debates purports to operate under that exception and a related FEC rule, which basically says if you are a nonprofit organization that hosts debates, you can do so using corporate money as long as your organization doesn't endorse, support, or oppose political candidates or political parties. And also, you must use objective criteria to decide who participates in the debate. Now, the CPD, as we call it, the Commission on Presidential Debates, was originally formed in the mid to late 1980s for the express purpose of holding debates between the Democratic and Republican nominees. It was started by two gentlemen who were then the chairman of the Republican Party on the one hand and the Democratic Party on the other. And when they started the organization, they publicly announced that one of their purposes was in essence to promote the candidates of those two parties and that they didn't intend to include any independent or third party candidates in their debates. As time went on, they were largely true to that goal and the people who ran the commission until recently always involved this guy who was the head of the Republican National Committee when it was formed, Frank Farenkopf, as well as the Democratic counterpart. And the others on the commission, almost all of them were Democratic and Republican politicians or operatives with deep ties to these parties. They have donated tons and tons of money to the parties. They've endorsed candidates, including presidential candidates who appeared in their debates. And before the year 2000, they didn't even really have any criteria other than sort of vague, manipulable, qualitative uh, factors that they claimed to use. And the only time they let anyone who wasn't a Democrat or Republican into the debates was Ross Perot in 1992, and that was because then-President Bush and Bill Clinton wanted Ross Perot in the debate. Then fast forward to the year 2000, the commission, which had been subject to some legal questions being raised about its status, decided to adopt a new rule, which is the one that Peter and I challenged would level the playing field and those other two parties that we mentioned. And that rule basically says that they would use polls conducted shortly before the general election and would only allow candidates who reached at least 15% on average in certain polls that they would decide to use. And so 
we brought a challenge to the Federal Election Commission arguing that the CPD was violating the law because it was run by people who were endorsing candidates, raising money for candidates, engaged in all sorts of partisan activities, and also because this 15% polling rule was not objective at all and, in fact, is essentially designed and calculated to keep independents out. And we produced two data-driven studies which demonstrated that it is impossible without, at the time, over $250 million to even raise enough money to get sufficient name recognition that you could even hope to achieve a 15% criteria. And obviously, no one can raise that kind of money if they're not in one of the parties. And so, so we proceeded with this challenge. You have to first make the claim to the FEC itself, the Federal Election Commission. We did that. They dismissed it. One of the things that had happened over the years, other people had tried to challenge this debate rule, and the FEC had repeatedly dismissed these cases. If the FEC refuses to go forward, you can then challenge the FEC in court. And so that's what we did next. And this was back in 2015. We filed a lawsuit in federal district court in Washington, D.C., and we argued that the FEC was arbitrary and capricious and that they should have gone forward with a case against the Commission on Presidential Debates because it was violating the law in those two ways that I mentioned. We initially, for the first time, won a lawsuit against the FEC on these debate rules when the district judge in the case granted our summary judgment motion and told the FEC that they hadn't bothered to consider what the district judge called a mountain of evidence demonstrating the partisanship of the Commission on Presidential Debates. She chastised them for failing to analyze the quantitative evidence that we had presented about how impossible it is to achieve 15% in polls if you're not a Democrat or Republican. And she basically sent it back to the FEC. And somewhat predictably, unfortunately, the FEC again came out the same way and dismissed the, our complaints. And we then challenged that again in federal district court. And unfortunately, this time, the district judge, after declining to rule for over a year, finally issued a ruling in early 2020, basically affirming the Federal Election Commission. We took that up to the D.C. Circuit, which also said it had to defer to the agency. Case still pending, and since that time, we have filed a petition for certiorari in the U.S. Supreme Court, which is pending and on which we expect a decision sometime likely in March. Well, Alexandra and Peter, we're going to take a quick break and discuss more about the challenges that are associated with our nation's current political paradigm when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IBN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guests are Dr. Peter Ackerman, an accomplished advocate for election reform, and Alexandra Shapiro, a stellar litigating attorney who's not afraid to fight for the cause. And Alexandra, let's start with you in that regard. What legal lessons have you learned from your experience? Well, I'd say one of the things, you can't get into this business lightly. The odds are very much 
act against arguments for political reform and particularly political reforms to help independents break through the duopoly and compete on a level playing field against Democrats and Republicans. And starts with these administrative agencies like the Federal Election Commission, which is basically by law composed of half Democrats, half Republicans. And it goes on to the courts as well. Most judges view these things through that lens. And I think you're dealing with also very well-entrenched legal doctrines that enable courts to avoid getting to the merit of a complaint like the one we had about the Commission on Presidential Debates, because law gives judges a fair amount of leeway to simply defer to the agency and basically say, well, we're not going to second-guess the agency as long as they say that they considered the evidence. And made a reasonable decision based on the evidence. And those doctrines give courts a tremendous amount of leeway to just kind of punt, if you will. And so one of the key things is you have to try to give the courts incentive not to do that. And you have to try, to the extent you can, to rely on legal arguments that won't get the courts as bogged down in having to second guess the agency on its assessment of the facts. So one of the ways we are trying to do that in our cert petition is we pointed the Supreme Court to two very critical legal errors that we believe the D.C. Circuit made in the way they interpreted the federal campaign regulation. We've argued that the D.C. Circuit improperly refused to consider all the many partisan political activities of the decision makers who run the CPD in assessing whether the CPD itself is too partisan to comply with the regulation. And similarly, the DC Circuit basically said this 15% rule was objective, even though it admitted that it appeared that only major party candidates could probably satisfy the criteria. And so we're arguing that a rule can't be objective if it's basically a predetermined conclusion as to who's going to satisfy the criteria. So we've tried to take it at a higher level to really an argument about what the rule means and the way in which the lower court, we believe, violated the meaning of the rule. And the other thing that I will say is that obviously when you're, once you're at the level of Supreme Court, the case has to be very important. And the good news about our case is that we think it goes to the very heart of our democracy and how presidents are elected. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, but it bears repeating many times, George Washington and other founders were very concerned about the dangers of a two-party system and partisanship. And Washington famously spoke about this in his farewell address. And we believe that this case is really the only way to decide this. It's not going to come up again. It can't be litigated, you know, in, in a different part of the country and come to the Supreme Court if another court has a different view. The only way you can litigate these issues involving the Federal Election Campaign Act is in the D.C. Circuit. But I think the bottom line really is that you have to try to find ways around the court's inclination to just pump the ball 
to another decision maker and not really look at the evidence by pointing to the bigger consequences of doing so. Thank you, Alexandra. Now, Peter, you've been fighting the establishment with respect to the duopoly for years, so let's talk about the elephant in the room and the donkey as well. What lessons have you learned and what do you think needs to be done to move the ball forward? First, let me say that I think having worked with Alexandra now for almost 13 years, she's done the heroic work. And despite the fact that we've had more losses than wins, she's moved the ball with tremendous effect. And what I think that it has contributed is to a generally growing recognition that the two parties are incapable of satisfying the kind of governance that the overwhelming majority of the American people want. So let me first take this back to how we make progress as human beings. Whether you're part of a governmental organization, a philanthropic organization, a commercial organization, you're part of a group that has a mission together. You want to advance the ball, so to speak. So people gather together in these organizations. Some have a thesis about how to go forward, a different set of ideas that allows them to take the next steps, unfold the merits of what they tried and the demerits of what they tried. Then they go through the process again. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. In our political system, because of what it took me 12 years to realize, the collusion between the Democrats and the Republicans through the variety of entities and legal processes that Alexandra has described, we have a system where on every issue we have a thesis and then we have an antithesis and we have in our political process a complete inability to create a synthesis to move forward. Not do we only have an inability, we have a proven collusive desire by both sides to not come to a synthesis. They have Uh, and it's taken me time to see this, and I think Alexandra has and others have, they have an interest in no synthesis whatsoever, but in perpetual warfare. And the American people don't want it. So to illustrate that point, about a year and a half ago, I commissioned with other people a 48,000-man interview process, polling process, and people were asked a simple question. Would you like to see candidates who are not affiliated with either party or any party win and take office in this country. And 68% females in the United States said yes, 32% said no. Of all males, 69% said yes, 31% said no. Of all Americans below the age of 40, 79% said yes, and 21% said no. So there is an overwhelming feeling in this country that there needs to be candidates that are not Democrat or Republican that can actually fulfill this desire for the synthesis that I just described. Now, words matter. So people, when they say, oh, you're not talking about Democrats and Republicans, you're talking about a third party. The people in this country do not want a third party. They want candidates who are unaffiliated with any party, who are not burdened by the requirements to keep the party well-financed and self-sustained and all the corruption and and semi-lying that goes with that or outright lying that goes with that. They want candidates who are genuinely unaffiliated. Now, the idea behind American Select is that if somebody had access to the debates on a fair competitive basis that was not affiliated, they could actually go out and raise the money necessary to compete and win. And we'd be glad to spend time with your listeners about how that could be done. But I assure you, if there was a pathway into the presidential debates, we would have extraordinary candidates running. It's a little bit like if you said to me, 
Peter, I own the Dallas Cowboys. What would you pay? And I'd say, well done you, and I'll pay you X. And then the next day, the NFL creates a rule that every team but the Dallas Cowboys can be in the playoffs. And you come back to me the day after and say, now what you would pay, whatever that number was originally, X, it would be X minus something. In fact, it might be X minus X. It would be worthless. So by this process that Alexander's been fighting about to basically, in effect, in a clever, hidden way that the courts don't want to address, to make it impossible to get into the playoff, which represents the presidential debate, in effect, it's undermined any possibility of a viable candidate that's not affiliated. Now, in general, outside the presidential debates, the other problem that exists in unaffiliated candidates being, being competitive is what we call the spoiler effect. In our country, we have what's called first-past-the-post plurality voting. And what that means is that everyone can only vote for one candidate. And if that candidate gets, if, let's say, five run, if that candidate gets 28% or like Clinton did, 43%, that candidate can win. We're one of the only countries in the world which basically does not have what we call a true-up, a runoff, or a formation of a set of parties that don't achieve a majority. So when you have first-past-the-post plurality voting where you have no runoff, what a man named Duverger said is the only logical way to organize is through two Big Ten parties, which what what we have now. Now, what that creates is that if, let's say, Alexandra wants to run as an independent and my wife likes her first and a Democrat second, and I like Alexandra first and a Republican second, we'll both like Alexandra in June, July, and August. But when September comes, we'll recognize that if we vote for Alexandra, we're giving up our chance to vote for a second choice. And so Alexandra becomes a spoiler and her candidacy predictably fades to nothing. The way to get rid of this problem is what we call ranked choice voting, where you actually rank each candidate by their preference. So for me and my wife, Alexandra would be first. For my wife, the Democrat would be second. And Republican third, for me, the opposite. The Republican be second, the Democrat third. Now, what we have is an instant runoff so that if Alexandra indeed has the least number of first-person votes, she drops out, and the people who had her as number one, then their second choice becomes the first. So in effect, Alexandra no longer becomes a spoiler. And because of that, people will be willing to vote for her because they don't have to worry about that, and more, can, more votes will go to her with the prospect of her actually coming out to be second. Now, with ranked choice voting, all sorts of candidates that would not want to play the role of spoiler would be glad to run. So for the first time, one of uh, the people who worked on Americans, like Karen McCormick, and I formed a group called the Chamberlain Group, and we actually went out and got the signatures necessary to have on the ballot in Maine for the first time where an entire state would reject first-past-the-post voting in favor of ranked choice voting. To that point, there were 11 cities. The Oscars and a few other organizations use ranked choice voting. We got on the ballot, and in 2016, we actually won. Now, the people who hate this measure the most are Democrats and Republicans together, just like Democrats and Republicans have colluded to make it impossible to get a third candidate into the debates on a level playing field. And so what happened in Massachusetts is that the legislatures, both dominated the upper and lower chambers, actually repealed the referendum that we won, and we had to go back and do what's called the people's veto, which was to repeal their repeal, which we were able to do. And for the first time in American history, a senator and a congressman ran on the basis of ranked choice voting. And in the 2020 election, 
we litigated against uh, Trump's lawyers who wanted first-past-the-post voting to be available only in the presidential campaign. We won that litigation. So the first time in the history of Maine, a presidential candidate was voted on with ranked choice voting. Since then, we've had efforts in Massachusetts. They were unsuccessful. The Democratic Party in New York has ranked choice voting, and Alaska had a nice victory. But it's our feeling that until ranked choice voting is adopted in the United States, the spoiler effect will stay in place. We will have a duopoly that will force us to basically go through policy after policy with no synthesis, gridlock, and forcing the American people a choice between two extreme positions, which in our opinion is killing the country. Everybody says the country is polarized into two camps, but that's not true. The data is overwhelming that if you're given a chance to find solutions that incorporate the most number of people, the overwhelming majority of people in the United States would seize those solutions happily. And so what this odyssey has shown me is that there's collusion between the Democrats and Republicans. It is extremely difficult to break on the legal front. Ranked choice voting and debate access are part of the same effort to try to get a third who is unaffiliated, which 80% of the people under the age of 40 want on a level playing field. And so that's what this debate effort represents, what ranked choice voting efforts represent. And I don't believe that under the current circumstances that this country will be able to flourish as it should until ranked choice voting breaks the duopoly. Alexandra and Peter, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your efforts to level the playing field for independent candidates? And Alexandra, let's start with you. Sure. And thank you so much for having us on the show. If the listeners are interested in learning more about the legal efforts and in particular the case about the debate, uh, you can go to my law firm's website, www.shapiroarado.com, to the news page. And there's an entry for November 8, 2020, right on the page about the petition we filed in the Supreme Court, and it has links to a number of the other briefs we filed in the case. So that's a good way to start learning about the lawsuit. Thank you, Alexandra. And Peter, any contacts you would like to share? I think right now, knowledge about ranked choice voting and interest in it is growing dramatically. So just go on Google and Google ranked choice voting in Maine and Alaska and Massachusetts in New York and just in general. And there's all sorts of great videos and other sources of information that will get you current about ranked choice voting, which I believe be great for anyone who's interested in making our government more representative of the people. And just to follow up on that, a quick plug, because I'm in New York City and we are using ranked choice voting for the first time in a mayoral election this spring and in the fall. And so we're very excited about it. There are, I think, close to a dozen candidates running in the Democratic primary, and it's all going to be decided by ranked choice voting. And I think most voters are pretty excited about that. Well, Alexander Shapiro and Dr. Peter Ackerman, it's been a real pleasure. I have tremendous respect for both of you. You're fighting a battle that most people would simply avoid. And I hope we all live to see the day when a fair election is held between the best talent our nation has to offer. You two have an open invitation to come back on the show anytime to talk about any progress you make. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts. 
on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.